you intrepid architects out there. If you believe design can change the world, then you've found your humans here on this show, Architecting. My name is Angela Mazzi, and I'm an architect and career coach who's figured out how to live my passion while claiming a successful architecture career and lifestyle. This show is about the architect as a person and will help you bypass the status quo traps in our profession while teaching you how to make an impact in your career. We need to stand in our power as architects and use our skills to make great places. If you're with me, let's get architecture. The one tip, though, which I have learned is I do think that there's something really great about a certain level of vulnerability and being in the moment and engagement. So like the fact that we're talking now, there's no script. Are you just getting the raw thoughts and feedback? However, I do think that that's much more engaging. I always used to be one of my pet peeves is that when you've got someone who's fantastically talented and they would pitch their work and they've got like two sheets in, uh, in front of them reading the script and I'd be like, dude, I'm right here. Just tell, just, you can speak to me. Welcome to Architecting. I'm really excited about my guest for this episode, Stephen Drew, who founded Architecture Social. It's really great to have you here. And I, I love what you're doing to build a community of architects. Thank you, Angela. And you're so patient. For context, for anyone listening here, Angela was super, super patient. I've just been in back-to-back meetings. However, it's a super, super thrill to be here. And um, my pleasure. I do love the architecture social. And yeah, it's uh, basically what I do is I still work in recruitment. And outside of hours, I set up the architecture social. And the architecture social is a community which is open to all. It is open to all um, from students academics and employers in architecture. And it was something that I set up during the pandemic on furlough, Angela, uh, because I furlough in the UK in COVID, there wasn't much work last year. So I was in my pajamas half the day. And rather than being on Netflix with two, two bottles of wine deep, I was like, I've got to do something with my brain. And that's what came out of it. That's it in a nutshell, but super glad to be here. Well, that's a great pandemic project. And, you know, if you haven't seen it, check it out. This is a really great hub. It's kind of part clearinghouse, part networking, part educational content. You know, people can put their own projects up there, or get um, kind of employment networking connections. So what were you trying to do with this? What gaps did you see in the profession that you were trying to fill with this effort? Really good question. And it, it kind of evolves as time goes on. I guess a lot like architecture briefs, everything. It's all about how the space has been used. And so it's a combination of things. But I had time on my hands. And the thing was, is that I used to work in architecture before recruitment. And so when I was a part one architectural assistant, so in the UK, that's pretty much a graduate architect. So the first role that I was entering the job industry market, it was during the 2009 global economic crash and the recession. And I remember the feeling of being a little bit apprehensive looking for a job because you study for all this time and you taught these skills, but you think like, how do I get a job? And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was this kind of supportive community for that? And that kind of is the core of it, that kind of mentoring aspect and and that stuff I really do enjoy. However, 
as time goes on, it's like you said, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We have Dungeons and Dragons on there. We have a book club. We have uh, things that change all the time. And with that, some things we've done, like we have game at night and that kind of works and then it kind of doesn't work. So we're always improving, always changing. But what I would like to see is more help towards architectural graduates, which is amazing. And what we're seeing as well is because it's open for all and free for all, more employers can go on there. They can post jobs. On the architecture social community, when you log in then, you haven't got like the adverts and all the awfulness of Facebook, the, the corporate evilness. However, I wouldn't say it's quite as maybe stuffy as LinkedIn. I quite like LinkedIn, but it, it's a little bit more informal. That's like the tone of it. And where it goes in a few months, I guess nobody knows. However, that's the fun of it. Well, it's amazing. I love you even sell um, flip-flops and t-shirts. So, <laughs> do you know, Yeah, do you know, what, do you know what? You'll make you laugh. We've only sold one pair of flip-flops and that was me mainly learning. I mean, the goal with the marketplace, and I'll be really upfront with you, is that down the line, I would like that students compose their own work and stuff. But the test was products and this amazing architectural graduate called Wallace Arbu and I've known him for a while and he basically is his picture and is credited on the architecture social which is the landing picture and I said to him can I have a bit of fun with the market store and so yeah you're right we have flip-flops on there and that's the one product I sold so someone in the UK bought some architecture social flip-flops and I think we made a profit of two pounds <laughs> living the dream yeah there you go <laughs> but it seems like you've really in a short time built a big following yeah I'm privileged I I try to be clever with it so the the heart of it is the community the stuff like the Instagram, the heart of the, the, the Instagram is actually to show, the idea is to showcase the work from in, within the community. What's really interesting is that the following, it tends to be the, the people within the community and participants, which is, which is great. Because one of the interesting things is with all these social media channels is that you're kind of blasting stuff out. And it's really hard to build a community on just something like Instagram because the conversation can be one way. Whereas what I like about the architecture social is people can talk to each other on there. They can post stuff and it's like a free for all uh, of a student dorm or a classroom or a professional environment. But what is really nice is to see that people on LinkedIn and Instagram really enjoy the students work and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's great to have that following and hopefully the content within the social media accounts that it's a it's a byproduct of the community so hopefully it's this awesome self-perpetuating organic fun thing and that's what I quite like about it you know you're kind of really reaching out to that young emerging professional we all deal with this we have to get a broad range of experience to get licensed but we're also trying to figure out what we actually want to do, what size firm we want to work at, what we may or may not want to specialize in. I think it's great that you're really targeting this to an audience that needs community, needs clarity, needs mentorship. Quite one of the questions that frequently pops up is like, where do I look for practices and how do I find them? And I really like challenging the typical 
archetype of what people think they're looking for. So uh, it's quite interesting that a student will typically find that Angela, that they want to apply to like the 10 architecture practices that they've known or aspire to, such as Skidmore and Merrill or HOK or WATG and all great companies. However, you're right. So what I'm quite keen to, to solve the problem in the future is learning about maybe the architectural practices which aren't so famous, but maybe they're local to you, or maybe they have core values that you're interested in that you, you weren't even aware of. So maybe whoever it's, for instance, right now, a really good example is with the pandemic, people doing healthcare and or changing hospitality into healthcare or right now in the UK, you have a housing crisis, right? So it's how do we involve uh, modular housing to solve this problem? And so it would be really interesting to see how people find companies by that. And the other thing which I think is going to be the big disruptor in the future is it's not going to be just about architecture practices which have, quote unquote, the sexy projects. It's very important now, uh, diversity, inclusivity, equality, uh, work-life balance, and this other stuff is, is, is super, super key. And in the UK, for instance, the, even the gender uh, pay gap. So there was, a, there was a gender pay gap, which is being more corrected now. But it was typically that male architects would earn more than their female architecture counterparts and so through conversation and talking about this stuff that actually it's all beginning to be a bit more of a level playing field in the UK and I think through tools like this it will be really interesting so the challenge for me going forward is identifying architectural practices which maybe don't necessarily have the limelight but are doing things the right way and really championing them so that they get amazing people apply I think that is kind of like a, a much better way of rewarding good architecture practice instead of naming and shaming those that maybe don't do it the right way. If you give the, the limelight to practices which are inspiring and then if they have inspiring architectural graduates and architects find them, then hey, that's kind of an awesome thing. So that's yeah. really where my head's at right now with it. Yeah. A myth with a lot of big firms is you look at a few projects that are amazing and you think, well, everything they do is like that. And that's not really true. Bigger the firm, the more stratification. So there's the A team, the B team, the C team, and the D mm. team. And you may find that you start out and you're working on C and D team projects. And it's really not any different than if you had worked at a smaller firm you know, you, you aren't getting what you thought you were getting going yeah. to the headliner kind of a firm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting building upon your point where maybe the experience you get at a quote-unquote not-so-famous architectural practice, maybe you run the project from the design inception to the practical completion. But as you said, I mean, I've worked in practice on a, on a large project and you can only do certain elements of a package because it's so, so big. I mean, it is quite interesting what practices which are quote-unquote not on design or not you know uh, on, on the architecture glamour magazines they still have super super rewarding employment environments yeah so you teach and you did practice and now you're on the other side doing recruitment where's yeah. the thread line through all this and where's your passion here for the architecture world 
I do like architecture. I was not the best person. I was not inspired by technical drawing. I understand its importance, but you know, when you, you have some people, they thrive on that problem solving aspect of it. It just really wasn't my passion. However, I loved architecture. I knew everyone in the office. My heart was in the right place. But what I was really good at is I loved pitching work. I loved the social aspects of it. I loved being involved in the social group. So I used to be the cheeky chap in the kitchens that knew everyone. I just, I realized that maybe being directly an architect wasn't for me. And so that's when I went into recruitment. And I, I would be misleading you if I didn't say that also the idea of making money. Or, or I think Wolf of Wall Street just came out at the time. And I was like, that seems so much fun. Let's go crazy. I do think though with, with recruitment, it can go two ways. There's no doubt if you have no morals and you just don't care, you can make more money. But to me my reputation in architecture is important. I do believe in doing the right thing. And actually in what I do of recruitment is really about pairing up the right practice with the right person. And even if that costs me in the short term, sometimes saying to someone, you know what, I know you've got an offer for this company for me, but I'm not sure if it's for you. I think that kind of home truth, actually people believe in you in the long term. And that also the comforting thing is that when they join a practice, and it's really the right fit, they're less likely, Angela, to drop out. So my dropout rate is a lot lower rather than just quote unquote, getting the bum on a seat. So recruitment, when you do it the right way, is challenging and I find it fun. And there's a lot of moving dynamics because we're dealing with people who uh, have their own lives and they have their own narrative. And it's really, really important to get it right. That's why I moved into it. And I guess that now, I don't have to worry about doing details incorrectly. It's that I remember once I, I lost like half a million pound of square meters because I, I counted the areas wrong in a drawing. So that's the, I don't have to have that worry anymore. I just hopefully build bridges up. So hopefully I found my calling in life and talking and communicating. People don't realize how diverse practice is, that not everybody is going to start at the beginning of the project and work on every phase all the way until the doors open. Like my own work, I work in the marketing, I work in research, I work on the front end of the project. And then in the design development phase, about halfway through, I kind of fade away. So <laughs> I haven't been on a job site and I haven't drawn a detail in many, many years. And that's fine with me. I have no yeah. real interest in that. Knowing your interests and matching them up is so important. Yeah, I kind of agree. And what I would say, just to compliment that point before we move on, what's really interesting is that actually, architecture, even though I don't do it directly now, I'm still involved in the architectural world. But what's really interesting is with the architecture social, there's an element of design in it. And I think that when you're an architect, there's a reason that you go into studying architecture. And to me, I still see it as design in this kind of mad metaphysical way. It's not quote unquote a building, but adapting and making this space accessible and changing what works and what doesn't is really, really interesting. And I believe that that approach you pick up in university and practice, it never leaves you, which is kind of a nice thing as well. It's, it's interesting. I do think about it sometimes. Somewhere around your second year, you can feel your brain shift and you know you will never look at the world the same way again. Yeah, and I love the way you said second year, because it's true. In the first year, I do you do learn things, but the first year, you do have a bit of fun as well, don't you? It's the, it's the first year. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think it's important for art 
architects to network outside of their firms, not just take their job and work on cultivating relationships there? This is a really good question and one I've not been asked before. Uh, so what you'll find in architectural practices is sometimes there's just one way to work in. So when I worked at EPR Architects, it was a fantastic architectural practice. And what was amazing is that when you've got architects from different architectural practices, they bring different things. It challenges uh, architecture. And I think as well, when you're talking about networking, it's really good to speak to people who may be in different sectors and they can offer different viewpoints on architecture. So that's really, really important. But also it's, it's really important for you and your career. So a good example is if you're constantly speaking to people in other practices or and you have a good relationship with your client. That's a really good example that I've seen people because they have such a strong relationship with their client that the client wants to hire them. They're like, come on my team. And I think the more and more you network, the more and more you build these connections. And over time, you build these friends in industries and you build your own reputation so that opportunities then start coming to you. They go, Steve, I, I know you might be happy where you are, but I've got this kind of project on right now. Do you know someone that might be a good fit for it? And then you go, actually, I'm interested. And there's all these possibilities that pop up, which is amazing and which you wouldn't have got if you were in your own bubble. So it's really important to network within your architecture practice, spend a bit of time on social events and go in the extra mile, try to give them 10 to 20 minutes before going back to your family. Of course, your family is important, but you developing the bridges internally is good. And then going to events. And I think that... What I really like on the Architecture Social is the fact that partly through running it, I am involved in it, but I, I've met people that I would never meet before. And this is why we're here in, the, in this interview is because of a, a conversation that we struck up with. But physically, we're in different parts of the world. So right, it's, right. It's, the, it's the part that we were both out there. And, and it's through this conversation that right now it, it could be this interview, but if something comes up, now we know each other. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I met Angela and you should da, 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 da. And that's how the, the world works. So the more you're out there, the more and more opportunities you create. And you, you just don't know where it goes. But you've got to be in it to win it. As in, if you're not networking, no opportunities. But if you're yeah. out there, something might happen. Yeah, I love that you said that because the biggest thing I tend to hear from architects of all stripes, but especially some of the younger ones, is I'm too busy. Yeah. And I just want to scream every time I hear that because you're hiding behind busyness and I always say you make the time for the things that matter and you make excuses for everything else. The busy excuse comes because you can't see the value. So what are some of the biggest barriers that you see younger architects facing that if they took a different approach and were more willing to put themselves out there, they might be able to overcome? And so my immediate thought about that is it's a two-way thing because I'm used to doing this now and talking because I've done it several times. However, bizarrely, I remember going to networking events where I would be too shy to talk to people. And I remember the first time I did a Zoom meeting, I was super, super nervous. So of course, confidence can get into the way of it. And the bit that I would like to say to everyone here, it's completely normal to think like, I'm worried about it or I'm not confident. But what you've got to do is you just got to do a little bit every day. You touched upon people say, I'm too busy. It's fine. And it's fine to have been busy. But what's interesting, it's like it's like the attitude of me during the furlough. I used to be like, 
five to eight kilograms lighter, okay? And so rather than me saying, oh, constantly putting it off, putting it off, I know it's something I need to deal with. And so that's what I'm actively doing now. But what I try to do is not blame myself and saying, oh, I messed up yesterday. It's what you do today. So we all have these things. I am far from perfect. However, anyone listening in here, I was using the analogy of my waistline, but say no, you feel unconfident with, with social networking, just do five to 10 minutes a day. And don't think because you haven't done any of it up until now that you shouldn't start. That's the biggest thing I, I see is people go, it's mm. too late. It's far too gone for me. And the other analogy I'd like to give really quickly is I remember years ago, I felt like I wanted to set up a YouTube channel for architecture. And I didn't because I was like, there's too many out there. It's too late. And so on the back of this community, one of the things is a YouTube channel. And we have a thousand subscribers. And, and what I find interesting, imagine if I just, again, Angela said, it's too late for the social, then we wouldn't have had that year's worth of build up. But because I started it a year ago, now things are in motion. So it's never too late. That's my biggest takeaway. And don't beat yourself up on what's happened. Let's just think about going forward, changing things. Now, that is such a great point to make. No matter if it's been said or done before, nobody's ever done it the way you would do it. And maybe you will be the one that makes the connection that matters to someone. I mean, I'm sure we've all had this experience where maybe you're in a meeting and you explain something and it doesn't really land. And then yeah. somebody else at a different meeting says the same thing you said. And all of a sudden, everybody's going around. Did you know whatever? And you're like, I said already but for whatever reason they needed to hear it in a different way yeah it's such a good point and, I, and to echo that because i do live streams and yeah, i do it in a live stream at first was super scary it's totally scary and sometimes i will say something on a live stream which is far from perfect and, you know i know my backbones i wouldn't say anything offensive or anything like that but when you're live angela it's a super weird moment and yeah you sometimes i can make a nervous joke and you think oh gosh um i will hope that didn't come across the wrong way and all this stuff but what i've learned is that actually through trusting in yourself and building up sincerity with people they know that you're alive and things are not perfect. I used to be very conscious about how I would speak if I'm mumbling, if I'm going ams and ahs. And one of the things that when you were speaking publicly, it's very, very difficult to get past that at the start. However, now I've got more used to it and I do less ams and ahs. But you shouldn't beat yourself up on that. As like you said, and especially in a live stream, you've got to give yourself a break because when you're doing a picture or presentation of your projects, it's live, it's in the moment, and things are far from perfect. The one tip, though, which I have learned is I do think that there's something really great about a certain level of vulnerability and being in the moment and engagement. So like the fact that we're talking now, there's no script. Are you just getting the raw thoughts and feedback? However, I do think that that's much more engaging. I always used to be one of my pet peeves is that when you've got someone who's fantastically talented and they would pitch their work and they've got like two sheets in, uh, in front of them reading the script and I'd be like, dude, I'm right here. Just tell, just you can speak to me. And what's interesting is while that script's perfect and it's got everything in there, it's not in the moment. Whereas imperfect, talking from the heart, pitching what you like from the from your project the passions the points that you know you've rehearsed those so you know the beat and you know the main points you want to uh, hit 
how you go about it though is is natural and i think that if you do, if you have that approach people are going to be more forgiving for the fumbles per se because there's meaning in the conversation rather than a script absolutely yeah. that authenticity it gives you a genuine connection and it builds trust and yeah. trust is really kind of foundational. If you don't have that going on, your client is going to be suspicious and think you're trying to <laughs> sell them a bill of goods because it's too slick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that, especially with my clients, so less on the optics of social, but more of what I do, do in, in terms of recruitment. Because I remember at first, the idea of working with the architecture practices, which I aspire to, was really like, oh my gosh, I was starstruck and and so over time, I've had to get past that because when you're working with an architectural practice you respect, yeah, I'm, I was more, at first, because I admired them, I was more inclined to agree with everything because of that respect. However, that was almost detrimental to the business. So what I've learned is that over time that you can be respectful and disagree with people. You know, you can be, look, I understand from your position. However, with my experience, I recommend that we look at X, Y, Z because I've seen that in other situations add much mm -hmm. more value. Mm -hmm. And you will get the respect back because what we're talking about isn't confrontational. And that's what I've learned over time. And the other thing that which has been really interesting that I've learned a lot more recently is that there's a power in saying no, and it's more respectful rather than misleading or going maybe, and yeah, we'll look into that. Sometimes it's better to say no. So a good example is that now things are getting busy again and I have to be really clear with a client and say, I can't work on that right now, especially for that fee. So it, could, it would be really interesting to see how that translates when you're running an architecture practice. But I think that saying no when the fees don't stack up is a little bit scary because you're almost telling your client like, I can't work on that right now. However, I do think they respect you for it. And actually what I've seen is that by turning away more work as a gentleman, that ironically, you get more work from it. Whereas initially, I remember years ago when I set up a business, I would work in any role at any fee. And it's really hard to come back from that because once you've established that low fee, Angela, it just haunts you for right. days and days and days. Yeah, the whole economic theory, red ocean and blue ocean. And red ocean is about that undercutting, vicious competition. And it ends up being a race to the bottom where yeah. you completely lose value and become a commodity. Yeah, there's a big thing at the moment in the UK. So timely with this, I mean, be interesting when this episode comes out, but basically last week, which was the last week of March in the UK. So one of the Reba are consulting right now on unpaid overtime being uh, remunerated mandatory, which is going to be a big thing in the UK if it goes through. Because suddenly, if an employee is being paid for overtime, really have to start looking at efficiency and performance. And we really have to start looking at that fees. What I have seen before, as so I've seen, uh, like, as you said, when a, when a, when a fee is uh, fair, but has a bit of wiggle room at the start, what I've typically seen is that teams and and projects are set out in such a way which they're more efficient. Whereas when the fee's lower, you tend to have less people on the job, longer hours. But what's really interesting is that from a recruitment perspective is that actually while the costs are lower during that point because you've got someone working longer hours uh, and not paid, more likely to leave 
the architecture practice, which has a massive financial repercussion because finding people is extremely expensive. You bring in a recruiter, it's a few thousand pounds straight off the bat. You have the downtime involved. And also when people are interviewing, I think everyone forgets that two directors in the room while interviewing is probably a $400 uh, you know, per hour. And they go, oh, I didn't really like that person. And so searching for people is extremely expensive. And there was one study that I'll leave on this point here in the UK. They found that unpaid overtime and big deadlines is that staff were much more likely to leave. I remember there was a practice and I haven't got the numbers in front of me. However, indicatively, the trend was that people were extremely more likely to be unhappy in their job if they were working overpaid and they would take more sick days, much more sick days. Uh which was interesting. However, everyone miraculously stopped getting so sick when hours were less and they were paid because people were less burnt out, to be honest. There was nothing in the handed. But when you factor that into running a business, suddenly you start thinking like, oh, if if I get this right at the beginning, you're probably going to save yourself more money in the long term. Right. It's that value and worth equation that really comes down to it. Face it, the people running architecture firms often are architects. They don't necessarily have HR skill sets or financial skill sets or corporate skill sets. And what do we learn when we go to school that becomes a culture for us Mm. is that we're never right the first time. We constantly have to iterate. There's no value to our time and we should wear working long hours as a badge of honor. Yeah. Translates right into practice. That, w- that was a big discussion because on Clubhouse, we, are on the, we have another little architecture social space there. And that was the topic last night about, is this the end of uh, basically not being remunerated, over, unpaid overtime? And that was a huge topic. It reminds me of that, old school, Gordon Ramsay, I'm going to throw a saucepan at your head. You idiot. You must, but it's like, you idiot. I'm here because I love you and you're going to do really well. But I had to go through this abusive thing and look how strong I am. And I'm doing the same to you. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, model translates in the new world. And I do think that there's some, uh, some architectural practices, which will be clinging on to that. However, that time's changing and everyone's talking about it. You've brought it up here. I'm talking about it with you. People were talking about it last night. And so I think that the values are changing. And actually, you've got a lot of forward-thinking architecture practices. The bit that's really interesting is I'm less interested in, if you've seen Game of Thrones with the battle, doing the shame battle to practices, you know, shame, shame. It's not so much that. But what I'm interested in is a bit when we were talking about the architecture social. My goal is if we start championing the practices which have the amazing, flexible work-life culture, they have a certain level of autonomy, I think that they're going to get the best people join the practice. So then you're rewarding good practice with financial gains. And I think that's what we will see is that the practices which are a little bit ahead of the curve, they will get the best people. And then maybe... On the back of that, the projects are smarter. There's more chances statistically that you can win awards and the fees can go higher. But I think there's a lot to gain. I'm not going to pretend I run an architecture practice. This is just more of the actual things that I'm seeing on the sideline, which seem to be working for the companies that are doing it. And I do think that the companies that are maybe not so progressive, it's going to catch up with them in the longer term. It reminds me a bit like practices, Angela, which didn't go to BIM straight away or still thinking about it now. And it's like 
the industry in the UK is going ahead with it. And architects are looking for places which use BIM because it's really important to them in their career. It just depends on the type of people that you want working with you, how important it is for you to attract the best people. I can guarantee you the forward thinking practices will retain and they will attract the best architects easily. So true. The company I work for, GBB, and one of the reasons I wanted to work for them was because they didn't tell you no. I went in <laughs> and I said, I want to work with evidence-based design. And they said, okay, figure out how to do that. It's a company that's always trying new things. And in fact, we're experimenting right now with unlimited paid time off. Wow. We're starting with the partners just to see, will people take it? Because we were noticing people were leaving time off on the table. They weren't taking even the time that they had. You know, when you'd say, why? Well, we have too much going on with the projects and we actively want to change that for the reasons you said. We don't want people burned out. We want fresh, innovative thinking. And a lot of times that comes from getting out of the office, enjoying life and making uncommon associations that lead to a break. Really interesting, as you say, that I think that when you offer someone the ability to have unlimited holidays, you might even find that they take less, but it's the choice, which is really important. It's the choice that people value because you're working autonomously and there's trust that means a lot to people. I've seen it when I've run teams as well, when you don't ask someone to work late. And if you really are looking out for each other, when the going gets tough, you just find that you just, you all band together and you don't have to ask people to stay because they will do what they want and they're invested in the company. They, they admire the values. And because you're not, you have this work culture where people are always working late, always working on the weekend. When it does happen, then people go, oh, do you know what? I just, this is, I'm passionate about this. I'm going to help get it across the line. That's the really interesting point. Like, as you said, the more and more good gestures that companies do, it means so much to the employees, to the architects, to the students. It, it means the world. And you're more likely to see that people stay with the company for many years. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? And then you have people who are actually part of the company DNA, which is the ultimate goal. That's borderline then a family. Do you know what I mean? That is so true. This has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing all of your insights. And this is my first international podcast. So it's kind of interesting to compare notes with what architects face in the UK versus what we deal with here in the United States. Amazing. Absolutely. My pleasure. I love it. I love it. The British invasion, super happy to be here. But hey, the architecture social, it holds no bounds. We'll have everyone. If, to me, it's a privilege to be on here. But the more and more, as you say, international practices, international students speaking with each other, it's really super interesting to see that. And one of the, the moderators on the architecture social, she's American, and it's been super, super cool to learn about her journey. And I've super enjoyed learning the nuances between the British graduate system and America. So absolutely love it. Architecture Social, last thing I want to say, Angela, is super international. So let's get you in there. I want to let's share, shout from the rooftop all the good stuff that your architecture practice is doing so that we can influence great practices in the UK to pick up the values, such as you mentioned, including uh, unlimited holidays. That was super cool. I really enjoyed <laughs> prowling around on the site. Everyone should go check it out. 
Yeah, it's all cool. Just go to www.architecturesocial.com and you can sign up and, and drop me a message. And I think you're on there, Angela, as well. Drop Angela a message as well and say that you listened to this episode. That'd be cool, wasn't it? And I'll definitely say hello. Brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed interviewing Steve. So many amazing insights. In fact, I was inspired to create a special gift just for this audience called Flip the Script. You can download it using the link in the show notes. It's a workbook that explores four of the most common limiting beliefs of architects with space for you to write your own reflections so that you can get over these quote-unquote truths of the profession once and for all. I hope you enjoy it. It is absolutely my gift to you. And again, you can find the link to download it right in the show notes. Can't wait to hear what you think. Until next time, stay inspired. (laughs) 